Southbridge. Good morning, those of you who are here for the first time or in from out of town, welcome. Glad to see you here today with us and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ together. You hear us say our vision statement is to connect people to Jesus for life change. That's why we exist. That's why we meet together today. And so Lord willing, uh, while we've been singing or while you've been talking to people in the lobby or praying with folks, just fellowship, whatever it is, that you've already had an encounter with God, and we're going to continue to desire to do just that as we open up the scriptures together this morning. We're doing part two of our series called New Beginnings. We began last week on Easter Sunday. We had an incredible Sunday celebration last week. If you were able to be with us, you were one of the people that were here for our highest attendance we've ever had at our church. Almost 1,100 people came together to worship Jesus Christ last Sunday for celebrating his resurrection. He's still risen this week, just so you know. And uh, we are glad to be together again as well. We had people last week that raised their hand, acknowledged a desire to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. We began this new series called New Beginnings. The ultimate new beginning is starting a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we are grateful for each one of you that have done that. If you haven't done that, then the Lord willing today, you'll cross that line of faith and trust Jesus Christ to be your Savior and have a new beginning with Him today. And today is really part two, and we're going to talk about what happens after you start that relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're a guest with us here today, we're going to go to prayer here in just a moment. After we pray, I would love it if you would fill out your connection card. It's in your um, worship program that's there. It's called the connection card. It's the part that detaches from that worship program. If you just take it out to the first-time guest kiosk on your way out and turn that in, you'll read some information in your worship program that tells you how that will bless someone else. And I'm going to pray for us. We're going to open up God's Word and do part two here. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for the assembly of believers that uh, we get to come together, that we don't have to live this life and isolation from one another, wondering if we're doing it right, that you've given us your truth, that you've given us guidance and direction from your spirit. And God, I pray your spirit would speak to our hearts today. God, I pray that you would come upon us in a special way in this meeting. Father, I pray there would be power here, that you would move in our midst, that you'd bind the enemy from this place, that the spiritual battle would be won by you. And Father, you would just allow us to focus on how much you love us and draw us to you and have us love you more. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, in these days, with all the technology we have, it becomes increasingly difficult to get lost when you're on a road trip, doesn't it? Some of you have GPSs built right into the dashboard of your car. Some of you buy them, and you can attach them and stick them on the windshield. I actually have one that's on my phone, and it will actually tell me exactly turn by turn how to get to where I'm going. I can speak to my phone and tell it I want to go to something or some address or whatever it is, and then it will tell me. And if the interesting thing is if I'm talking on the phone to you, it will actually talk to me, and you can't hear it. And so it's a really cool feature to not get lost, which is great for someone like me that's directionally challenged. And uh, recently I had the opportunity to go visit some friends that were in from out of town in Burlington. If you're not familiar with Burlington, it's about an hour away. You Basically, it's a straight shot. You hop on I-40 West, you head out to Burlington, and you hit it. And as long as you don't drive past it, you're good. And so I put it in my GPS. I headed out that way. On the way back, I-40 East. Pretty simple route back and forth. It was a Saturday night. I went out to visit some friends, spent some time out there with them, and then got in the car to come back, and I hopped on the phone and started talking to my wife, Shanna. We started chatting for a little bit. I saw the sign for I-40, hopped on I-40. I had put it in my GPS on, on what to do. I had talked to her for about 20 minutes on the phone. After that, I told her I needed to call someone else. I wanted to get that call done before I got home, and so hung up the phone and called the next person I was going to talk to. Talked to them for about 30 or 40 minutes on the phone, and I'm driving. I'm looking around, and I'm thinking to myself, this doesn't look very familiar. Like I should be back in Raleigh pretty soon. I've been driving for about an hour. Get off the phone with that person, and I look at my phone, and somehow it must have been muted. Because it's saying, recalculating route, recalculating route. I realized that I had just driven for an hour in the wrong direction. I got on 40, but it was 40 
west instead of 40 east to come back to Raleigh. And so I threw my phone down in the seat. I was so mad. I hate wasting time. I actually started hitting the steering wheel and saying, no, as if I could like reverse course at this moment. I made a hard right onto the exit and then I grabbed my phone because I'm thinking now I'm about two hours behind. I'm going to have to call my wife and tell her I'm running late. And just like in a movie, as I pick up the phone to call her, the battery dies. And so I U-turn it around. I get back on 40 east. I drive for about an hour and I get off at a Chick-fil-A, exactly where I was at when I got on I-40. And I go up to the guy at the counter and I ask him, can I use your cordless phone here and call my wife? I, it's Raleigh, but just you know, long story short, he gives me the phone. I call Shanna. She picks up the phone. I said, I'm at Chick-fil-A. She kind of chuckles and says, yeah, I know. We have caller ID. A and I said, I'm exactly where I was at when we started having a phone conversation before. It's been two hours now, so she already knows I'm running late. And she can't believe that I've done this. I said, I'm getting a milkshake. Like... <laughs> It was late at night. Don't judge me. It was a Christian milkshake. I was at Chick-fil-A, and so I got the milkshake. I hopped back in the car. I had driven the wrong direction for a whole hour. I was so mad. I was frustrated. You know what the Bible says in the book of Proverbs? That there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. How many of us are traveling down a road that we think is the right road, that it seems right to us? And many of us, we even think we're doing exactly what God wants us to do, but in the end, we'll find out it was exactly the opposite direction from where he wanted us to travel. Last week, we talked about new beginnings, and we said that a new beginning is you're, you're headed down the road very simply. As you turn, that's what repentance is. A new beginning requires a response. Remember, and that response is repentance. And you turn to God. Every new beginning has a new direction to it. This is part two. Last week, we talked about how to have that new beginning. This week, how do you live on that new direction? Because every new beginning has a new direction. Many of you, you've placed your faith in Jesus. Some of you did it last week. Many of you come to that place where you realized you were doing your own thing and you turn to Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? How do you live the Christian life? Is the Christian life just a cleaned up, moralized version of the life you were living before you came to Jesus? That would seem right to many of us. Is the Christian life just a, a life of being nicer, being more friendly, that would, that would seem right. Is it just a, a life where once a week you gather together with some other people that say they believe the same stuff and have a good time with one another and sing some songs and go home and come back and do it over? That would seem right to many of us. But what does it really mean to travel on this road of new direction? That's what we're going to talk about today. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. And we're actually going to be in the book of Acts for the next four weeks in this series. And so last week I said it was a four-week series. I actually wasn't counting right. Uh, I'm not a math guy. I'm a Bible guy. And so it's a five-week series. But there's only four left, so if you're here this week, we'd love to have you for the next four weeks. But Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Next week will be in 2, and then 3, and then 4. And uh, it's really a continuation of what we talked about last week. The book of Acts is really like part 2 to the Gospel of Luke. We were in Luke chapter 24 last week. The same guy wrote the book of Luke, wrote the book of Acts. And it's, it's kind of like I was telling my daughter last night about it. It's like Madagascar 1, Madagascar 2. It's like the sequel. And, and so part 1 is all about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ from his birth all the way through his perfect life until he died on the cross, the substitutionary atonement in our place. He died on the cross for our sins, that we could have a relationship with God the Father. And then he rose again, what we talked about last week, and then he ascends into heaven. And then the book of Acts picks up where that left off. It recaps the resurrection and ascension, the last ascension appearance, or last resurrection appearance right before the ascension, and then talks about the birth of the church, the movement that Jesus Christ started, Christianity. And so we're going to talk about that in the book of Acts. And what he talks about in the book of Acts is really how to live in this new direction. Maybe you've asked yourself that question before. 
We had a guy on our staff, Brad Altice, he's the director of our Bridge Kids ministry. He just took that position recently. He was in the staff meeting, and we were talking about just Christianity and life and making decisions for Jesus and people who made decisions last week. And Brad said he remembered when he trusted Christ, re- really rededicated his life when he was 27 years old. Everybody was congratulating him. Everybody's excited for him, and they should be. It's the most significant decision you ever make in your life. But his question was, now what do I do? Now how do I live this life? And that's what Acts talks about. And what's happening here is the last resurrection appearance of Jesus Christ. He appeared to his disciples over 40 days, and here's the last one, and we see his last words. And he tells them how to live in this new direction. Look at it. Luke says in verse 1, In my former book, Theophilus, written to the same guy that the Gospel of Luke was written to the most excellent Theophilus, and here it is, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. In verse 2, Until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And then in verse 4, he starts to talk about this last appearance. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, broiled fish we saw last week, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In this passage, we've got the situation. It's the last appearance of Jesus to his disciples. He's been appearing to them for over 40 days. Remember at one point, they weren't sure about his resurrection. We talked about that last week. And then when they saw him, they thought they saw a ghost. But now it's been 40 days. Now there's a building anticipation for what is next. Now there's a building anticipation for what they're going to do. There's an excitement that our guy has won. And then he says to them in verse 4, did you notice? Wait. He's talking to them about how to live in a new direction And he tells them to wait because a new direction requires a willingness to wait. A new direction requires a willingness for us to wait. And here's the problem with that. Most of us don't like to wait. Now, we get a lot of training, whether that's at the DMV or whether it's with customer service or wherever it's at, but we don't like to wait. I told you recently that my family and I went on a vacation to an amusement park called Disney World, and uh, there are all kinds of lines at Disney World. So I've got plenty of illustrations for waiting. And one of the places we went to was a ride called the Toy Story Ride. And then when you come in, it, it says that you're going to wait for 50 minutes, five zero minutes when we got there. We ended up waiting for 75 minutes. And I'll tell you what I don't appreciate about what they do. They play mental games with you while you're in line. They put you in those turnstiles. Have you ever been in the amusement park before? And you keep walking past the same people over and over again. It's like a germaphobe nightmare. And then also, it's not real good for judgmental, th- at least for me, you start telling stories about people and to kind of pass the time. And, and what ends up happening is you go through these turnstiles for a while, and there's always a spot where you can't see around the corner. And so you assume that that means the ride's right around the corner. And then you turn the corner, and it's a whole other room with a whole different group of people, and they're all walking through these turnstiles, and it's frustrating, and all this waiting. And we were going through this line. I went out and tried to get fast pass. I did all kinds of stuff, but I ended up in this one room where they had this Mr. Potato Head robot that was putting on a show for the kids, and it was really cool at first. The third time Mr. Potato Head does his show and you're still in line, you want to turn Mr. Potato Head into French fries, okay? I'm telling you, it's not fun waiting. But what do you do as a believer in Jesus Christ? It's not just a moralized version. It's not just a cleaned up version of your old life when the scriptures actually command you to wait. 
And the Psalms, it says this, in Psalm 37, it says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when other people aren't doing this and they succeed when they're doing their thing, when they're doing even evil schemes, when wicked men in their ways, when they carry out their plans, you wait. We're in a time of waiting. The time period of the church is a time of waiting for Jesus Christ and his second coming. We must be willing to wait upon God for his comfort, for his guidance, for his plan, for his purposes, for his desire, for exactly what he's doing. So many of us were in times of waiting. We hate waiting. These men were commanded to wait. Can you imagine what that was like? In the first three verses here in Acts chapter 1, basically what Luke is doing is summarizing and setting the book up. To the most excellent Theophilus here, he writes, he's showing everybody this is the sequel. Luke was part one, here's part two. And then he goes on to talk about well, what's, what's been happening. And in verse 3, he talks about how Jesus appeared to these disciples and he's taught them about the kingdom of God. That's the reign and the rule of God. And then in verse 4, look at what he says in verse 4. In verse 4, he tells them specifically to wait in two different ways. He says, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem. That's the first way he says it. It's in the negative. But wait. If there's any place they didn't want to be, it was Jerusalem. This is where Jesus was just killed, in Jerusalem. In the Gospel of John, in this appearance, we end up seeing that they're behind locked doors because they're afraid of the Jews. They're living in fear in Jerusalem. And he says, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait. Can you imagine what it was like for them to have to wait in this situation? Just think through the emotions that they've gone through over the past several days. They saw Judas, one of their close friends, One of their confidants, a person that they were friends with, that they laughed with, they saw him betray Jesus to his face and then kill himself. And I don't know if you've ever had somebody commit suicide before that you knew, that you loved, but that's a tragic experience. And then not only that, but we talked about last week how they saw Jesus, their guy, taken. And when he's taken, he doesn't resist. And when they throw accusations at him, he doesn't say anything back. And then when they put him on the cross, he doesn't perform a miracle. Don't you think that they probably expected him to do some miracle? But he doesn't save himself because if he saves himself, he can't save us. And so he willingly submits himself to the cross and then he dies. And they're going through grief and confusion. We saw last week that the women went to the tomb and they came back and then they thought it sounded like nonsense that the tomb was empty. And then Peter goes to the tomb and he wonders what happened. Did someone steal the body? And then Jesus starts to appear. When they first see him appear, they think they saw a ghost. But Luke tells us here, in verse 2, that he appeared to them over 40 days, multiple appearances. And we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he appeared to over 500 witnesses at once, and then also to Peter and to James and to various different folks. And so by now, your confidence is building. It says in this passage of Scripture, he gave them convincing proof. Yeah, they got to touch him. They got to eat with him. They realize it's their guy. And while they're coming out of all this grief and perhaps depression and confusion, now they're starting to realize our guy won. He has victory over sin. He had victory over death. They killed him, and now he's alive. They can't even kill him, and he's our leader. He's our master. He's our man. He's our friend. He's the one that we're following, and and he wins. And he gets victory over death, and he gets victory over sin. He gets victory over Satan. He gets victory over hell. He gets victory over all that stuff, and they're starting to realize this stuff, and they're getting to the point where they're willing to charge hell with a water pistol. And then Jesus says to them, wait, wait, are you kidding me? Like, can you imagine Peter? You know, Peter, how do you think Peter felt at this moment? Peter's the guy that pulled a sword out and cut a dude's ear off when they were arresting Jesus. 
He's a guy who walks out of the boat. He's never afraid to talk, even when it makes him look foolish. He's not known for patience. Peter, let me tell you this, never lost his remote control. (laughs) Peter never had to wait in line at the Toy Story ride, I promise. I don't know every detail of Peter's life, but I know he never did that. Peter didn't have a microwave oven. Peter didn't have all the things that oftentimes foster our impatience. But he was impatient. Can you imagine what it was like to be him? Certainly. Because many of you, like me, are impatient. And what do you do when God tells you to wait? And I don't mean in line at the DMV or for the Toy Story ride. What do you do when God has you in a stage of waiting? Sometimes I feel like for our church, we're in a stage of waiting. We ran out of seats at this church about two years ago and want the next place. and want God to give us a, a bigger place. We got more people on mission for him to connect people to Jesus for life change and go out and do that. And, and it's like he said, wait, why? Some of you individually, you know what it's like to wait. Maybe you're single and you're waiting for that person that you can share your life with. And God says, wait. Some of you, you're in a job and you know what it's like to wait. You feel like you've outgrown that job. And you want to do the next thing, but God hasn't provided that next thing, and he's got you in this period of waiting. Some of you, you're married, and you decided you want to have kids, and you're trying to have kids, but God's not answering that prayer right now. Or maybe he's telling you to wait. Some of you are at various different stages. Maybe medically, you're hoping for something from the doctor, but you're waiting. Maybe you're waiting for something to happen in a relationship. You're waiting to turn that corner or you're waiting for that stage where the kids get to the next stage and you're in this waiting time period. Let me encourage you with something. God does some of his best work while we wait. It's not the most exciting stuff. We'd all love to rush forward, to see movement, to do the next thing, to charge hell with the water pistol, but God does some of his best work while we wait. And when you look at the scriptures, you see all these great men and women of the faith And how God used waiting in their lives to develop their faith, to strengthen their faith, to prepare them for what he has for them. You look at Moses. He rushes ahead with the very vision that God had for his life to free his people from slavery. And he kills a man. And then God puts him in waiting for 40 years. Do you think those were 40 wasted years in Moses' life? Before that burning bush experience, and then he'd lead those people. And remember, they'd wander around in the desert for 40 years. What do you think God did in those other 40 years when Moses was on his own in the desert? Or you look at Abraham. God promises Abraham, you'll have a land, a seed, a blessing. Everybody who blesses you, they'll be blessed. And you're going to be a blessing to everybody you come into contact with. And the way I'm going to bless you is I'm going to give you a ton of property. I'm going to give you a ton of people. And he and his wife can't have children. And God doesn't promise him a child, and the next day she's pregnant. There's a time of waiting. And you look at the father of our faith, Abraham, and how God developed his faith during that time of waiting. And you think about how different he views that child after, after that time of waiting and how differently he views those promises after that waiting. Look at Joseph. Joseph's a guy who's wrongly accused of rape, gets put in prison. The only people that know that he didn't do it is the woman and him. What do you think it was like as he sat in prison, you know, bouncing the ball off the wall or playing tic-tac-toe or whatever it is he did all that time? You think he thought to himself, I'm wasting my life? But he was in a time of waiting. It was the man that's blind in John chapter 9 to get to the New Testament. He was an adult. And all we see is that moment where he's healed. What about all those days up to that? Is that all a waste until that moment? Or does that change the way he views the whole world, the fact that he was blind for all those years? 
He was in a time of waiting. Mary and Martha, when Jesus comes after their brother Lazarus dies, you know what their words are? If you had just been here, you would have stopped this. If you go a few verses earlier in John chapter 11, Jesus has just said, I'm so glad that I wasn't there for the sake of the disciples so that they could believe. And so their waiting wasn't even about them. It was about somebody else. See, God does some of his best work while we wait. We live in a time of waiting and anticipation for the second coming of Jesus Christ right now. And some of us, were in stages of life that feel like waiting. As a church, sometimes we feel like the growing pains, the growing pains of waiting for this place. Why is God doing that? Is it so that he'll strengthen us and our commitment to the mission, the vision, not just to a building? I hope so. Maybe he's weeding out people that just come for entertainment. I don't know what he's doing. But we're in this waiting time period. Some of you and your singleness, you're waiting for that person. And maybe God's developing your love for him, your identity in him. I don't know. But you're in this waiting time period. And some of you waiting to have children or waiting in a job or waiting in a relationship, waiting for different things to take place. You've got to be willing to wait in this new direction. God's timing is not microwave timing. God has a plan for us. And we might have a way that seems right to us, but we've got to be willing to wait upon him. And he tells the disciples here in this passage, you don't leave Jerusalem. <clears throat> they would love to leave Jerusalem. But you wait. And they've been waiting for 40 days now. They've been waiting since the day that they saw Jesus on the cross because things aren't going the way that they anticipated them to happen. And what he ends up doing over this time period is he teaches them about the kingdom of God. That means that he is the king, that he rules and that he reigns. And maybe that's what he's teaching some of us in our time of waiting, that God's not like our personal assistant. You know, sometimes we treat God like he's our personal assistant, and, and we have wishes, I mean prayers, and we give them to him and hope that he'll carry them out for us. God's not a personal assistant. And, and as cool as it sounds, it'll be like, God's my co-pilot on your bumper sticker. He's not your co-pilot. Okay? God is king. And when you come to that place where you realize you were traveling down a road, you're doing your own thing. You were on the throne. Whatever thing you put, money, sex, stuff, whatever it is that was there, it was you that was in control. And you turn to him, and what you're doing is you're recognizing he's the king, and his worthy seat is on the throne of my heart. And he teaches us about his kingdom in those times of waiting. And he taught his disciples about that. And he tells them to wait. And then he talks about this gift, the Holy Spirit, that's going to come upon them. He says in verse 5, For John baptized with water... But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he's talking about here what's going to happen in Acts chapter 2. We'll get to Acts chapter 2. But what happens is the Holy Spirit comes on them in a unique way. And they speak in languages they've never been trained to speak in. And read Acts chapter 2. There are people there at this time period where they're from all over the world. And they can hear the gospel in their language. And all these men are Galileans. It doesn't even make sense what's happening here. And he's saying that I'm going to anoint you with a special anointing for a special work as you preach the gospel to the world. And he gives them the Holy Spirit. While they wait, they still have work to do. You see, waiting is not passive. And we don't just sit here and look to the sky and hope for Jesus to return today and it didn't happen today. All right, we'll do it tomorrow. No, he's got work for us to do. Because on a new direction, we don't just need to have a willingness to wait, but we have a new mission. In a new direction, we have a new mission. You see, all of us have a mission in life. We might not realize it. It might not be like a company or a church or whatever it is that we write out our mission, but we all live for a reason. There's a reason why we exist. That's what a mission statement is. We exist too. You'll see them start oftentimes. 
And so we all have a mission that we live on. For some people, our mission is simply the pursuit of happiness. It's kind of like a default one for us. We put in our constitutional documents, and it was, we live on a pursuit of happiness. And so we just continue to live, exist, for the sake of trying to create happiness in our lives, whether that's circumstances, finances, whatever the different things are, we're trying to create happiness in our lives. And that's your mission. For some people, the mission is success. And whatever that means is defined in different categories for different arenas of life, whether that's sports, academics, business, whatever it is you do, that the mission is to succeed in those things. Or maybe your mission is more money or whatever it is. Your mission is a relationship. Your mission is whatever it is that drives what you do every day. That's why you exist. That's your mission. Now, let me say this before I even read the next verses. If you're a follower of Jesus, your mission is clear. If you are a follower of Jesus, you don't get to decide. The king has sent a mandate, and he's made it crystal clear. And he says it here, and I can't overemphasize what he says here. While they were meeting in this last encounter, the disciples, they were together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's a political question. And Jesus isn't going to rebuke them for asking, but what he's talking about in his kingdom is far superior to a political issue. And look at what he says. It's not for you to have charts and have diagrams for all this stuff. You're not going to know. The times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. It's his business. And you're not going to know the dates. But while you wait, I've got a plan for you. But, see, you've got a plan. You know something that seems right to you, that Israel would be restored here. But, contrast, but I've got an alternate plan, a new mission. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now let me emphasize here, and I don't want to de-emphasize anything else in the Bible, but I can't put too much weight on this verse. Let me emphasize here this. This is why we exist. This is why we exist as a church. Any church that exists for something other than this, the evangelization and discipleship of the entire world, is not a real church. Any individual believer that exists, that lives their life on mission, other than this mission, let me be crystal clear, is living in disobedience to God. And we all have different gifting, and we all live in different arenas. You might be in the political arena, you might be in the real estate arena, you might be in the medical arena, you might be at home, whatever it is. It's all packaged, contextualized in different ways, but the mission is the same for all of us. It's the worldwide evangelization and discipleship of all nations. It's stated here, it's stated at the end of every gospel in different words. In the book of Matthew, the most popular one probably, therefore go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. In the gospel of Luke, we looked at last week, he says it this way, that you would preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins, key components to the gospel. In the book of Mark, it's more of a summary statement. In the book of Mark, it says this, that you would preach the good news to all of creation. It's more general in the way that it's stated. In the book of John, John chapter 20 and verse 21, John says this, that just as the Father has sent me from the lips of Jesus, so I send you. In the book of Acts, it says here, you will be my witnesses. So if, if you are a follower of Jesus, and that's a huge if, okay, not if you go to church, not if you're a religious person, not if you're moral, not if you believe in God, not all that stuff. If you are a committed follower of Jesus Christ, he is your savior, he is king of your life, you have a mission, and it's clear. And that mission is the worldwide evangelization and discipleship of all nations, starting here at home, 
but equally important, all around the world, you want to see everybody come to know what you know, and so you witness about what you know. And what is a witness? Right? Like, if that's what we're going to be, it's a promise here. It's not an option, it's a promise. And there's debate amongst scholars about whether it's a command because it's future tense and all those types of things, but the wording is a promise. You will be witnesses, whether they're good ones or not, it doesn't really say, but it says, you will be my witnesses. So a good question would be, what is a witness? And what is a witness not? Well, a witness, oftentimes we think of a witness as somebody that would maybe be a witness of a crime. You'd see something, you'd experience something, and pick whatever crime that's in the news right now, whether it's murder or robbery or whatever it is that's happened. When the detectives show up, they're trying to find the truth. They want to know what really happened. And so one of the first questions they ask is, are there any witnesses? And what is a witness in that moment? A witness is someone who's had an experience or seen something. And other people are dependent upon them telling the truth about what they've experienced. A witness is not someone who just knows facts. They didn't just read a newspaper article. They didn't just read the Bible. But they have an encounter with Jesus Christ. For these men in this passage, they were literally witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For each one of us, we are witnesses to whatever it is that God's done in your life. What a witness is is someone who tells the truth about the experience that they've had because other people are dependent upon their testimony, their telling of the truth. That's what a witness is. A witness is someone like Kelly Ashim at our church. And she shared her story with me this week. She told me I could share it with you. And, and she doesn't think it's real profound, but it's incredibly common. She, as a young girl, grew up in a home where mom went to church regularly. Dad didn't go to church. And sometimes she would go with mom. And she heard about God, believed in God, but hadn't heard about the need for a relationship with Jesus Christ. Hadn't heard about newness of life. Hadn't heard about forgiveness of sin. Hadn't heard about what it is to walk in a new direction. And she longed for the love of her father. And dad didn't use the phrase, I love you. And didn't really know how to demonstrate love to her. And so she looked for her in other places. And she was one that would go with the crowd as the crowd would do things for acceptance. And then as she got older, guys started to show attention to her. And so she started to go to guys because guys paid more attention to her than her dad did. And some of you know what that's like. You go to the relationship, the guys or maybe the girls. And you're looking for something there and you don't find it. It feels good in, in certain moments, but then afterwards it's just more and more empty, and that's how she felt. After those relationships, it was more and more emptiness. And then there was a, a gentleman who ended up sharing with her about a man named Jesus Christ. Now she could have a relationship with Jesus. He gave her a book, and she took it home, and she started to read the book and talked about this newness of life. It talked about what it is to truly know Jesus, not just to believe in God, and that she would need to turn to him. She was going down a path that seemed right to her, but she needed life. And she started to realize as she read this book, well, I've been going through these relationships and doing all these things. He's been right there with me. That Jesus Christ, he is love, and he's holding his arms open to me. And he wants to show me the love that I've been longing for that I can't find anywhere else other than from him. And while she was reading this book, she placed her faith in Jesus Christ. And she got down on her knees, and she wept for two hours. While Jesus was changing her, cleansing her, renewing her, and setting her in a new direction. That's her witness. Details of your story might be different. But that's a witness. It's someone who gives an answer for the hope that they have. Like Peter tells us. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. 
He says, but in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. He's king. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect and love. The way that Christ would share his love to others. Sometimes confrontational, but with gentleness and respect. Sometimes just conversational as it's happening. It's part of your story. That's a witness that shares that with all nations, with everybody and every opportunity in the home, in real estate, in medicine, in the school, wherever it is that you're at. But there's all this pressure and you don't understand what it's like. You see, when you're a witness, you have to testify about these things. It's like Peter and John, when you've been truly transformed, how can you not share these things? You have something that's forever. And you know other people that are going forever to a place called hell. And whether you believe in that or not, it doesn't change that it exists. And Jesus talks about it. And Jesus says, it's not a good place to go. And he gives us life and words of life. And we can be so nonchalant about the fact that we've been transformed and we have people that we love that haven't. You see, John and, and Peter, and we're going to get to Acts chapter 4, but in Acts chapter 4, what ends up happening is they have to come before the Sanhedrin. Those are the religious authorities of the day. And, and they've been doing miraculous stuff. And there's this guy who's about 40 years old who's been transformed. And they start asking him, how did you do this? What's going on here? In whose name did you do these things? And they say, it's in the name of Jesus. And they share a verse that a lot of people don't like. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There's no other name by which men shall be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. And then verse 13, it's interesting. The Sanhedrin huddles up and they take note of the fact that these men have been with Jesus. Which makes me think, would people even know about me? And then they go on and they huddle up and they can't figure out what to do because if they condemn these men, they've already put them in prison. If they condemn these men, then the crowd's going to get mad because you can't deny what's taking place in people's lives. But if they send them out, they're going to keep doing it. So they come to them and they say, as the authorities of the day, you can't speak in that name any longer. Look at what they say back to the Sanhedrin, the, the authorities. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 20, I'll put it up on the screen. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We're witnesses. And then they go on to tell him, you judge for yourselves whether this is right before God. You decide. But we can't stop telling people about Jesus. And our king, he's in a higher authority than you. These are the authorities. And some of you are in situations where it's tough to do that, to witness to someone. Scott, you don't know what it's like to be in the public school. You don't know what it's like to be in the hospital. You don't understand my mom. You don't know. And you think about the people that you love that need to know Jesus Christ. This is your mission. This is why you exist. But there were two promises in this verse. Did you see the other promise? You will receive power. He's going to give you the ability to do it. That word there, but you will receive power. That's the same power. That word is the word that's used to describe the miracles that Jesus does in the Gospels. That's the same power that raised Lazarus from the dead. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the same power as at work within us. And that power, that ability to do these things is given to us divinely by God. The problem is so many times our presentations of the gospel, they lack power. Don't they look more like sales presentations? Like you do these three things and drive towards decision and Jake created the need and now you got it and I'll close the deal. I mean, pray the prayer and... Why do we lack power? Maybe it's that we do what seems right to us. And we lack a dependence on the Spirit. You know what happens in Acts chapter 4? Sanhedrin, they don't know what to do with Peter and John. And so they just send them on their way. Don't do that anymore, okay? <laughs> We're going to do it. Just don't do that anymore. Go ahead. 
and they head off and they go back to some believers that are gathered together in a house and they come in and they have a prayer meeting and they start praying. And you know what they pray? They pray, God, give us the power, the ability to do miraculous things in your name. And God, give us the power to speak boldly in your name. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, it says this. I love this passage. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Ooh, do you hear the plane? Perfect. <laughs> Set that up. Anyway. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. But here's the really powerful thing. And they spoke the word of God boldly. Now, we've got people that policies and things like that. It wouldn't like you to do that. And you're not allowed to use that name. It seems like when you use that name, there's a problem. You can use other names. But they were under pressure from the authorities, commanded not to speak in that name. But they're also commanded by their authority, the king, to boldly speak in his name. It's been a clear mandate from the king. And they're given the power to do so, regardless of the other pressures. See, we lack the power oftentimes because we lack the dependence upon the Spirit. Because we're doing what seems right to us. We're going in our direction. And we're going the exact opposite direction of what God has for us. And there's one response to that, and it's repent. And it's you turn back to Him. And some of you have been living on mission. Let me ask you, would you be so bold as to pray to God and ask Him to give you a person that he breaks your heart over? When we were singing, when we were worshiping this morning, there was a song that we sang that said, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Do you know what breaks his heart? Is that every day, millions of people die and go to hell. He loves those people. He says in the Gospels, I long to gather them together. They're beaten. They're left. That's what he sees when he looks at them. It breaks his heart. Ask God, I dare you to ask God to burden your heart for someone that needs to know Jesus Christ. And for those of you who have yet to turn to him, we love you and we would long for you to do that today. Let's pray. Father God, we come into your presence thankful for your son Jesus Christ, that he is risen and that he has taken upon our sins. And Father, I pray if there are any here today that have yet to place their faith in your son, Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be the day. I pray that there are any here that trusted Jesus last week and they were afraid to mark it on a card, that they would let us know that we could walk with them in that decision. And God, I pray for those that need to trust Jesus at this moment, that right now they would come to you, they would admit their sin, they would believe upon your son, Jesus Christ. They'd turn from the direction they're going and they would receive your forgiveness. And Father, I pray for those of us who do know you. Maybe we've been living on our own mission, doing our own thing. We repent. We turn to you. And God, I pray that you would put on each one of our hearts as believers a person that you desire for us to share the gospel with. Will you give us their face right now? Will you break our hearts? Will you put a weight upon us, a pressure upon us that feels what you feel for them, the love that you have for them? God, will you move us in our spirit to pray for them regularly? Will you move us in our spirit to look for opportunities to be a witness, to testify to the things that you've done in our lives to those people? Because they're dependent upon our testimony, of our telling the truth, so they can make a decision. And God, we know that decision is in your hands, whatever decision they make. But will you use us to be your witnesses? God, you promise that you will. I pray, God, that we would be worthy witnesses of you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.